That's decent. <laughs> better do better next week. <laughs> Welcome to Grace Bible Church this morning. Uh, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark. Uh, if you happen to not uh, bring your Bible this morning, we have pew Bibles in front of you, uh, various, you know, various places in the pews, and uh, you can turn to that. If not, the text should be up on the screen. We are going to be in the book of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 10, starting in verses 17 through 22. And so as you're flipping there uh, to the book of Mark, Chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, uh, by way of preface and uh, to precede our prayer, I uh, want to let you know that we've been in the midst of a summer series called The Idol Factory. Uh, and there is our Idol Factory, and as you can see, um, it's been producing all sorts of uh, idols because our heart uh, produces all sorts of idols, according to the scripture and John Calvin. Uh, we have talked about the idol of family, work, children, acceptance, pleasure, romance, and this morning we're going to be talking about a big one. This morning we're going to be talking about the idol of money. Um, as, as you look at our boxes, the box that the Idol Factory has produced for the idol of money is probably actually the smallest box. But I would suggest to you that for those of us who live in affluent America, that it's actually our biggest idol. This may be our biggest idol. And so small box, big idol, the idol of money. So before we jump into that, let's do this. I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time, and uh, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your teachings. Thank you that you had much to say and reveal to us um, about your Heavenly Father on so many issues, uh, but particularly uh, about what you had to say about money. Jesus, I'm reminded about about the fact that I came across this week that roughly 25% of all of your teachings are on money. Father, it's because it's something that we continually get wrong, and it's something that we continually use wrongly. It's something that we hoard and something that we idolize. And so you devoted a quarter of your teachings through your word to address this idol. And so Jesus, speak clearly to our hearts. Spirit, come, guard my words. Help me to speak true and accurate words. And Jesus, may you speak as clearly to us as you have spoken as clearly to this rich young man that we will see in just a minute. And so come, reveal the idols that lay in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So the idol of money, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. Um, I, I don't know if any of you are into musicals. Uh, my wife and I really enjoy a good musical. Um, uh, I'll be honest, before I got married, I probably could not tell you what a musical was. Um, I thought musical. I don't know what that is. But after I got married, I came to realize that musicals are pretty cool. It's like a play with music. And oftentimes, those who are in musicals, they are talking normally like I do, and then they burst into a song, and it's wonderful. It's pretty cool, you know, just, just like that. Um, and, so, and so I've been to several musicals uh, since I've been married, and uh, though we have not seen this particular musical live, I would really like to see it live, and this musical that I'm referring to is Joseph Stein's uh, beloved musical, Fiddler on the Roof. How many have you ever seen it live or on the TV version? Fiddler on the Roof, many. It's, it's well-known, really good, uh, really good musical. Well, I, I want to play for us one song in that musical. The main uh, character, I think his last name is Tevya. Um, he sings a song, and this particular song is called, uh, what do you think? If I were a rich man, if you know it, then you know it. If I were a rich man, and really he talks and dreams about what he would do if he were not poor like he is, but if he were wealthy. And he asks the very last line of the song. I really is really is the one I want us to focus on because what he asks is this: Would I spoil or would I ruin some vast eternal plan if? I were a wealthy man. And so he's asking God in this song prayer, what would it hurt 
if I were wealthy. God, what is it, what is it ruining that I'm, if I were to be wealthy? What, what could it hurt? So let's, let's sing this song and then we maybe will hear Jesus' words and he's gonna tell us, well, it might actually hurt something if we were a wealthy man. So I don't want to see any of you during my sermon doing this kind of thing, you know. I can't even dance like that, but I can't dance, generally speaking. All right, so the question that he posed is, would it, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a rich man? Well, this morning in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going to actually come across a Jewish man who was not poor like Reb Tevia, but who was indeed a very wealthy man for his day. And we're going to see that Jesus essentially tells him that, yeah, it could spoil some vast eternal plan. And yes, there is danger It could hurt something if we are caught, like this man is, in the idol of money. So let's let's do this. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 23. And I want to read the text together, and then we'll walk through it bit by bit. Uh, 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a rich man came to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Reading of God's word. Uh, This morning, I want to do three things uh, with the idol of money. So if you're taking notes, three big points, three main ideas. Number one, uh, we're going to see Jesus expose the idol of money. So we're going to allow Jesus to expose the idol of money in this rich man's life. Secondly, we are going to expound on the idol of money. And in our expounding upon the idol of money, maybe... God willing, he might expose the idol of money in our hearts as well. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about ending the idol of money. So exposing, expounding, and ending the idol of money. First of all, let's expose, or rather, let's see how Jesus exposed the idol of money in this man's life. Uh, He begins in verse 17 and 18, and we see a bit of the context of this initial beginning. Let's read it again, starting in, in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. And fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop right there. Uh, The first thing, uh, I just want to make some comments about this text as Jesus exposes the idol of money. First of all, noticed uh, a few things about this man. Uh, Number one, uh, he was on his way and this man, noticed the verbs, he ran up to him and he fell on his knees before him. This would have been something that would have been odd in that day. When we look at the other accounts, we come to find out that uh, I think it's Matthew that describes this man as a ruler, which means he was a religious leader. He might have even been a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the religious holy of holy kind of religious leaders. He might have been a local synagogue leader. He was a religious man. And so we find out, number one, that he is steeped in his religion. He's self-confident. 
confident, uh, if you will. And secondly, we find out from uh, the other gospel that he's a rich man. And so the reason why this is odd, because religious leaders and rich men in that culture would not run. They would not run. And so his action of running... Uh, indicates that he's really seeking after something. And then secondly, he falls on his knees before Jesus. Another uh, act that really uh, a person of his status and stature probably would not have done. And so initially we see that he really wants to know something. Secondly, notice what he says in verse, uh, the tail end of verse 17. He, he says, good teacher, <clears throat> good teacher, what must I, what's the word? Do. That's an important one, is it not? Because it reveals the man's religious perspective. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this man thought that he could earn eternal life. He thought he could merit right standing with God. Uh, if you look at the context of what Jesus says after this, he thought he could merit, he could do something to ensure that he would be a part of God's kingdom, which likely he believed that Jesus might be initiating. And he wanted to know for sure what he could do to seal the deal. He was works-oriented in his religious perspective. And notice Jesus' response then in verse 18. It's an odd one. He says, why do you call me good? The man says, good teacher. And surely he was just acknowledging the fact that Jesus was a good teacher. He spoke from God. He spoke powerfully. And he says, you're good. But what Jesus does is he says, no one is good but God alone. What Jesus is trying to do is to expose this guy's wrong understanding of goodness. Because to this guy, goodness was what we typically think of in our culture. When we use the word goodness, it's like we, it's, it's like this man, because it's relatively good, right? If I say that you're a good man, that means that you're better than average, right? It means that you're not as bad as some. It's a relative term, and that's how this guy uses it. But Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. Don't use that term of me unless you recognize what it really means. <clears throat> he says, no one is good except God alone. And so what he's doing, he's revealing the man's sin, and he's identifying himself as not just a teacher, but as God, as one who is perfectly good. And so he says, wait a minute. If you think that I'm good, and you want to call me good, number, uh, number one, recognize I am good because I am God. And number two, recognize that goodness is not just better than average. Goodness in God's eyes is perfection. And by the way, you don't meet it. <laughs> by the way, you are not perfect. And so he hints at this. Jesus continues on. He continues on. Verse 18, Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And then what he does in verses 19 and 20 might... It might startle you, it might scare you, it might confuse you. It, it does me, and it did me to some degree, uh, all of the above. But what Jesus then does in verses 19 and 20 is he tells him about God's standard for eternal life. That is, okay, I'll answer your question. You want to know if you can earn eternal life? You want to know how to be perfect as God is perfect? Well, this is what you need to do. And he goes on and he talks about five of the Ten Commandments. And he lists commandments number five and ten. Five through ten, if you look at it. And essentially what he's saying is God's standard for eternal life, God's standard for being good is perfect obedience to the law. That's what he's saying. It's being perfectly obedient Obedient to the law as summarized, that is all of the law, all of the Old Testament as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so that's kind of startling, but what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help this guy understand 
that he can't earn eternal life and that he is not good enough. So notice what he says in verse 19 and 20. He lists the commandments. You know the commandments. And so he talks about murder, adultery, stealing, giving false testimony, not defrauding, honoring your father and mother. All of these come from Numbers 5 through 10, which interestingly enough, when you read through the Old Testament, all of those commandments relate to how a person is to act towards another person. And so he says, well, you know the commandments. You know that perfect obedience to all of the law, as encapsulated by the Ten Commandments, this is, this is what you must do. And it's interesting, because he only lists the ones as it relates to other people. He doesn't list the ones that are one through four. In fact, if you were with us for the Idol Factory Part 1, what we discover is that commandments one through four are all about how we're supposed to re- relate to who? To God. In fact, the primary commandment is, worship me alone and don't make any idols. That's the thrust of commandments one through four. And Jesus leaves them out. He leaves them out. And what I think he's doing is this. Jesus is saying this. There are five more commandments, and you're breaking them with the idol of money. You're worshiping money rather than God. Thus, you are disqualified from eternal life. Jesus, I think, is hinting at this man's real problem, which was idolatry. Loving money, serving money, rather than serving God. But the man does not get the hint. He, uh, he maybe boldly or maybe accurately uh, says this in verse uh, verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. And so he says, oh, the ones relating to how I'm supposed to treat other people, I've kept those. Since, by, since my bar mitzvah when I was 12, I've kept those. I've been accountable to the law and I've been spotless. That's possible. Paul in other, in other scripture said, I did that. I was spotless according to the law. So externally, he might have done this. Internally, I doubt he did this, but he doesn't get the hint. Jesus is pointing him towards his idolatry, and he's missing it. It's going over his head. And so in verses 21 through 22, what Jesus does is he... Um, he goes for the jugular, if you will. He goes for the jugular. He goes for the kill shot. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus. And I love, I love Mark's rendition. It's only in Mark, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Can you imagine that in your mind's eye? Here's a man caught in the grips of idolatry, and Jesus knows it, and he's about to give him a radical command. He's about to tell him to do something that is like off the wall, crazy, that seems to you and I, give away everything you have, give it to the poor. That seems unloving, does it not? That seems unloving, but Jesus says, this is exactly what you need. I love you. I just, in my mind's eye, imagine Jesus telling him this, looking with compassion and his heart is broken and maybe a tear goes down Jesus' eyes because he realizes that the best thing for this man is to be free from his idol. And so he gives him this crazy, off-the-wall commandment. Let's read it again, what Jesus tells him. In verse 21. One thing you lack, he said. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. What I want us to see is that Jesus' off-the-wall radical commandment is intended to expose this man's idolatrous love of money. It's for his good. Dr. John Grasmick says it very well. He says this, The one thing necessary, the one necessary thing he lacked 
was unrivaled allegiance to God, since wealth was his God. He was devoted to it rather than God, thereby breaking the first commandment. The man was to go, sell all of his assets, give it to the poor, and therefore removing the obstacle blocking him from eternal life, namely self-righteous achievement coupled with the love of money. And so Jesus gives this crazy command to this guy. And how does he respond? How does the man respond? What does the text say? The text says, at verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. You can just see his countenance falling as he realizes, I don't want to do that. I don't love you more than I love my stuff. And his face just falls. And the text says that he went away sad because he had great wealth. Mark Driscoll says this as he's preaching on this text. Driscoll says, You don't know you have an, an idol, that is, you don't know you have the idol of money until you face the prospect of losing it. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. I want to point out one other thing about this command. There is the negative side of it, if you will. He says, you're rich. Sell all your stuff. Find some poor people who need it. Give it away. Wow. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And this is so significant. I don't want you to miss this. Listen, Jesus doesn't just say, well, just go, go get rid of your stuff. And that's it. That's not enough. It's not enough to get rid of his idol. He has to replace his idol with worship and adoration and commitment to something else, namely Jesus. So what does he say? He says, go, give it to the poor. And then what? You will have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure in heaven. He says, you have treasure on earth now, but if you do that and are free from your idolatry, you're going to have treasure in heaven where it really counts. And not only that, but then you replace worship of money with worship of me. And that's how we get rid of idolatry, ultimately, is we worship Jesus. And so, we've seen that Jesus has exposed the idol of money in this man's life. So I want to move now to our second point. We've exposed the idol of money, but let's now expound on the idol of money a little bit. And what I mean by expounding is, let's apply it to our lives. We've seen Jesus give this radical request to this man, and his intention is to expose his love of money rather than Jesus. Let's expound and see if maybe Jesus can expose our idol. Let's see if Jesus might be able to expose the idol of money in our life. But before we do that, before we talk about a couple lessons from this text for you and I, I want to pause and take a a bit of a rabbit trail. And that is this. There are almost always, in my mind and in your mind, objections. We hear stories like this. And we want to distance ourselves from what Jesus has to say to this man and to you and I. There are a couple objections, and they go like this. Number one, we say, well, that's fine. Jesus can say that to somebody who's extremely wealthy. He has every right. In fact, if we're like anti-rich, we're like, yeah, get him. Get that guy. (laughs) He's wealthy and he loves his money. Go get him. Tap him, you know. Um, And so we, we, we we want to think that we are not rich. We don't identify with the rich man in this story. Did you? When you read it, did you put yourself in the shoes of the rich man? Or maybe of Jesus or or of his followers? I would suggest to you that we should put ourselves in the shoes of the rich man. The objection goes like this. We're not rich like this guy. And so we're not as likely to idolize money. And to that, I say that's a bunch of poo-poo. Because we are very rich. We're extremely rich. I don't know if you realize this. You probably do in some way, shape, or form, and I do, kind of. 
We live in the most affluent nation in the world. But not only that, most likely we live in the most affluent nation ever. I mean, ever, ever. I mean, you look at the Romans and all the major dynasties. They had wealth and things like that. But my gosh, I doubt they had air conditioning. And I, and I doubt they had cars. And I doubt they had, they had really nice indoor plumbing. They were not wealthy <laughs> compared to us. So let me ask you this. This is interaction time. Don't be afraid to raise your hand. It's very simple. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. And if, if it's true of you, raise your hand. Don't worry. They're not embarrassing. I don't think. <laughs> so raise your hand if this is true. Number one, do you or someone in your family make more than $2 a day? Okay, everyone. Let me, uh, let me tell you this. Two billion people, there are six billion people in our world. Two billion people live on less than $2 a day, roughly one-third of the population of the world. And so if you have $2 every day in your pocket to two-thirds of the people, you're wealthy. You're wealthy. Number two, do you have adequate housing? That is, do you have a roof over your head and you're not, you're sheltered from things? Adequate housing? Would you say you have adequate housing? I have very adequate housing. 1.6 billion people in our world live in substandard housing and 100 million people are homeless. 1.6 billion. That's a little less than one third. That's like, I don't know, like 30% or something live in substandard housing. So you go home this afternoon and you go in your house and you have air conditioning, rich. (laughs) You're rich. Number three, do you have clean water? Do you ever worry about the water you drink? And I'm not talking about like, oh, I really rather have reverse osmosis because this is nasty. No, like, (laughs) no, like you you, you, you drink it and think, I hope I don't die from this. Adequate water. Yes, all of you. Okay. 925 million people, roughly one-seventh of the world's uh, population um, don't. Don't. Do you f- eat food every day? Do you eat food every day? At least once? I do. I eat two, three, four, five. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> I, I eat a lot. Um, eight, 884 million people don't. One in eight, one in eight people go to bed hungry. That's roughly 3.5 million people or the population of Chicago. Every night, someone in the world, city, size of Chicago, goes to bed without being uh, adequate nutrition. The point that I want to make is simply this. We cannot look at this man and say, that's him. Jesus, get him. No, it's Jesus, get us. (laughs) Because we're wealthy. Number two, the objection goes like this. It's a little more subtle one. This is not for every Christian. We think and we look at this and we say, this isn't for every Christian. And that's true. (laughs) It's true in some sense because Jesus doesn't ask every single follower of his this kind of radical command. This is a limited context, a limited purpose, a limited time. And so Jesus asks this radical uh, request of this man. And no, he doesn't ask me and you necessarily that we just make ourselves poor, give to the poor and and follow him. Uh, And so... Well, that's true, what I want to, the point I want to make is this. While Jesus may not ask every Christian to do this, what this text shows us is that Jesus might ask some Christians to do this. And so before we let ourselves off the hook here, let's put ourselves back on the hook because Jesus might do this. In fact, Robert Gundry, Robert Gundry comments and he says this, I love it, but I don't love it because he's talking about me. That, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possession gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. 
And so if you're thinking, oh, Jesus is going to give that to him, but not to me. Oops. (laughs) Gundry says, well, maybe you're the kind of person that Jesus might give that kind of command. Because maybe we are caught in the idolatry of money. And so we've answered a couple objections. And what I want to ask, what I want to say is that what Jesus might do is this. Jesus might, Jesus has every right to come to us as our Lord and Savior and say, I'm going to expose the idol of money in your life. He has the right to do that. And he has the right to ask us to give to the poor or to the church or to a family in need or to a, a nonprofit or to sell our house and to get a smaller one or to trade in our brand new car to get a junker. He might, he has the right to ask us to give up whatever it is that he wants to expose our idol of money. And when he does it, listen, when he does it, he does it in love. He does it in love. <laughs> He's not trying to wreck our life or our fun. He's trying to give us treasures in heaven and help us follow him. So what can we learn about this? A couple things. A couple things we can learn about this. Number one, number one, money unmasks our priorities. I think that's very clear in this text. Money unmasks our priorities because for this man, what was his priority in life? The text very clearly says that he loved treasures in on the earth because Jesus says you 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 sell your earthly treasures the thing that you that you value that which you prioritize you sell that and then you will have heavenly treasures then you will have heavenly priorities his priorities were on his treasures on earth rather than the treasures in heaven in fact in Matthew 6 Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus says this for where your treasure is that is where you put your money where your treasure is there your heart will be also there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is where we spend our money reveals our priorities. And secondly, where we spend our money, there our heart is inevitably going to follow. So it's kind of like lightning and thunder. Kind of like lightning and thunder. We see that there's lightning outside. And then we wait for the what? We wait for the thunder. Because inevitably, where there's lightning, there's going to produce thunder, right? What Jesus is saying is that where the lightning of our money goes, the thunder of our heart is going to follow. Does that make sense? Where we stick our money, inevitably we care about that. Um, not really a money. Well, yeah, it is a money. It is a money example. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was watering our plants. Uh, if you have plants outside, and it's been 100 degrees... Plus, outside, uh, your plants are probably dying like mine are. And so I try to remember every night, I need to water our plants. And we are not green thumbs. We have, thanks to the help of kind people in our church, who planted our plants, helped us plant them. They really planted them for us. Out front, <laughs> right? And and it's a lovely a little setup. I really like my plants. But then when I got the bill, I was like, are you kidding? I spent X amount of dollars on plants? I've never spent that kind of money on something that could die. I just, I never have. Um, and I'm like, wow. That, and so I began to, the point is, I began to see those plants outside as an investment. Does that make sense? I should water them. I put my money there. Therefore, I care about them because it's hot. I'm going to water them. And the contrast couldn't have been clearer. I, tr- I make a conscious effort to preserve my investment because my heart is there. But then there are plants that we have under our big tree in the front. If you've been to our house, we have not a big tree, but bigger than me. <laughs> we have a big tree in front, and uh, around that tree, we have little kind of plants. I don't even know what they're called. What do they call plant people? Hostas, thanks. I don't even know. I just water them, you know. 
<laughs> They're pretty. And so we've got these hostas, right? And here's the deal. Some, somebody gave us these hostas. Like, I didn't pay for them. I didn't invest in them. And they're all over there. Now, let me guess. Or let, let me ask you to guess. What gets my time and my water? The ones I paid for or the ones I didn't? The ones I paid for. Literally, I have not once this year watered my hostas. Because quite honestly, somebody gave them to me and I don't care. I just don't. If they die, I'll say, you were generous once. Can I have your hostas again? <laughs> you watered yours. I didn't water mine. <laughs> Please. But the point... I'm, I, so you're like, I'm never giving that guy hostas again. <laughs> the point of my rant is this. Where we invest our money... Our heart follows. And so let me bring this home a little bit. If the extra money that we have that is in our checkbook outside of things that are necessities in life, where does that go? Where it goes indicates where our heart is and where our heart is going. And so if if that money goes to entertainment or sports or tools or toys or vacations or whatever, none of those things are bad. Don't hear me saying that. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if our money... You look at your bank account, you look at your budget, and by the way, this is a shameless plug. If you don't have a budget, get one. Because if you keep track, like I had to when I got married, thank you, accounting wife, uh, if you keep track when you, when you, where your money goes, you might be astonished how much money you spend eating out. You might be astonished how much money you spend renting video games. And those aren't bad, but then compare that to where you spend on things like Compassion Child or Campus Crusade for Christ or how much you give to the local church to God's work here or how much you give to a a single mom who, you know, they have she has three or four kids and she needs school supplies. Compare your money because where your money goes, there your heart is going to be also. So what about you? Are you an idolater of money? Am I an idolater of money? Well, look at your checkbook. Because money unmasks our priorities. Secondly, the love of money hinders generosity. The love of money hinders generosity. This is so clear from this text. The man loved his money. Jesus said, go be generous to people who have much, 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 much less than you. And he's like, no. (laughs) And he walked away. He was sad because he couldn't earn eternal life. But he didn't go and help the poor. It's because when we love our money and we idolize it, then we are not generous. Uh, really interesting stat. Guess, get, guess what, uh, not even a tax bracket, but what level of income, like super poor, poor, medium, what, what bracket of income do you think percentage-wise is most generous in our nation? Take a wild guess. It's the poorest. Uh, one stat that I read from Passing the Plate says this, that those who make under $10,000 a year, those who make under $10,000 a year give roughly 5.2% of their income. Everybody else gives roughly 3% of their income. That's amazing. People who don't have very much give a lot away. You know why? Generally speaking, love of money hinders generosity. And so... I want to share uh, this as we head towards wrapping up. Jamie Munson in his book, Money, Gift or God, it's an excellent book, super practical, super helpful. I have several copies. Come ask me. In his, in his book, Money, God or Gift, he helps us discover if we are generous or if we are greedy idolaters. So I'm going to ask you, and you say, I'm either here or there. Don't say it out loud, <laughs> unless you want to whisper it in your spouse's ear or something. Uh, but as it relates to money, As it relates to money, number one, do you 
uh, think this way. God gives. God gives my money. Therefore, my money is his, and I use it to glorify him. Or number two, I earn. Therefore, my money is mine, and I use it however I please. Think here for a second, and don't just say, oh yeah, it's God. It's God. Sure. No, think about it. In practical when you know when you're th- and when you're working and on the job and when you're making money decisions, how do you really think? Do you think this is my money or this is God's money? Really, which is it for you? As it relates to possessions, number one, I have enough. I have enough. I have enough contentment. Or I never have enough. Number three, as it relates to the church, I serve in the church. Or number two, I am served by the church as a consumer of religious goods and experiences. That's how many of us see Christianity in the church. We are consumers of religious goods and experiences. Rather, we being generous, we serve the church. Number four, work. How do you think about work? Number one, do I work heartily for the Lord? That is, I work for God, I cultivate an attitude of thanksgiving for all that God has given. Or number two, I work begrudgingly for man. I work for a man or a woman or a company or whatever, and I become bitter and jealous. How do you work? Because it reveals your idolatry or lack thereof. Number five, giving. I give joyfully. I give sacrificially. I give regularly. Or my giving is guilt-driven. That is, somebody might see that I'm not putting money in the plate, so there I go. Gain-motivated. That is, well, God, if I give this percentage, then you're obligated to meet X, Y, and Z and give me this this and that. Gain-motivated giving. Or it's just non-existent. It's just non-existent. Which, which are you? Because depending upon where you fall, these may be symptoms or red flags of your love and my love of money. So, really quick, how do we end the idol of money? How do we end the idol of money? Well, number one, I think we do it by giving generously. We just talked about this. We give generously because what does Jesus say? He doesn't say where you spend your money then, uh, it doesn't say your heart is there and then you spend your money. He says where you spend your money, your heart is going to follow. So it makes sense. If you want to be free from the love of money, what do you need to do? You need to give some away. Like he, that's what Jesus asked this man to do. You need to give some away. You need to be generous because in doing that, you're going to invest in Grace Bible Church. If you invest financially in Grace Bible Church, I would suggest that you might be more inclined to be a part, to be a part of the ministry, to care about what's going on. And if you don't, then you may not. If you invest in a compassion child in Southern Africa, you might well care about what's happening in Southern Africa on the news. Does that make sense? Because where your money goes, there your heart is. And so be generous. I want to share this quote. C.S. Lewis when asked the question, how much should we give? What does generosity look like? I've not heard a better answer. In Mere Christianity, he says this, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. To give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusement, etc., is up to the, hear this, is up to the standard common among those individuals who have the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. There, there ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity expenditures exclude them. So let me ask you this, prosperous American. Most of us would consider ourselves blessed and prosperous Americans. Does God give us a $75,000 level income so that we can live like we have a $75,000 income or a $25,000 or a $10,000 or wherever you fall on the spectrum? I would suggest, and C.S. Lewis would suggest, is no. He says, if 
If what we spend on the things that we want that are not wrong in and of themselves, comfort, luxury, amusement, if we spend money on that and we look at other people who are like, they make about what we do and our lifestyle is the same, then he would suggest and I would suggest maybe we're not generous. Maybe we're not generous. What is it that you would like to do or like to buy that you can't because you care about being generous to the local church or to a missionary organization or to this family or whatever. Is that true of you? In closing, the second way we end the idol of money is simply this. We live content and simple lifestyles. 1 Timothy 6 7 through 8 says, For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul simply says, if we are fed, if we have clothing, that's simple enough. That's simple enough. Now, I doubt any of us are going to go to that level. Maybe we should. But the point is, is that if we live content in simple lifestyles, we are free to be generous, and we are free to be set free from the idol, this overwhelmingly powerful idol of money. And so as we wrap up, let me share some personal, how this has worked itself out in Shelley's life and in my life. Um, we, in, over the past year or two, have, have, have had these questions. We've had these conversations. And as I read this, I had to ask myself, if Jesus wanted to expose the idol of money in my life, what would he ask me to give up? And I ask you that too. What would he ask you to give up? For us, there have been opportunities, things that we could do financially speaking, that we've decided not to do. Not because it's wrong, not because we won't ever, but for, for now, if we were, I don't think we would be obeying this command to live simply and contently. So number one, I really want a bigger house. I'll be honest. I want a bigger house. I like my house. It's great, but I want a bigger house because I want more kids. <laughs> I love kids, and I want more kids, and I want more space, and I want a bigger house, and I want a basement where my kids can go play in the winter. Those kind of things. But you know what? It's probably within our means right now to do it, but I don't think it's time. Because that would not be content. Because as Shelley and I talked about it, do we need a bigger house right now? No. We just don't. Would we like one? Yes. <laughs> Will we get one in the future? Maybe. Um, but now's not the time. Because I think Jesus is saying, be content right now. Last one. I would like not only a bigger house, I would like a bigger car. <laughs> I'm from Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas. And I want a bigger car. Um, and so... Uh, <laughs> confession time for the pastor. So I was looking on Facebook the other time, the, the other day, and we have uh, some good friends, and uh, they have one boy who's about Asher's age, and they're having a second little child in the near future, in like several, uh, next several months. And I noticed online, there was a, a picture that was posted, and it was the mom standing by a minivan, and the, and the headline said something like, now we're ready for kid number two or something. And I'll be honest, sinful confession. I was like, I already have a second kid. I want a bigger car. <laughs> and, and, and here's here's the deal. I I had I, I endured two minivans growing up as a kid. So no, nothing against minivans. I'm not hating. If you like it, great. It's your cup of cup of tea, you know. I don't like minivans because I grew up in them. And so I was. But in that moment, I was like, Am I having minivan envy? <laughs> I'm like, really. Really? Do I really envy a minivan because it's bigger? And, I, and, and the truth is that yes, I did. I did. And so as, as I read and as I hear Jesus, I'm like, okay, Jesus, I'll give up the minivan for now. <laughs> 
I'll give up the minivan for now or whatever bigger car that I think we might need because right now, we just don't need it. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And so let me ask you as we wrap up. Will you allow Jesus to expose the idol of money in your life? Will you put yourself in the shoes of this young, rich ruler to which Jesus asked a radical command to expose his idolatry for his good? Will will you stand in his shoes and hear the words of Jesus and say, I'm willing to hear Christ what it is that you might want me to be more generous on or in or give up so that this grip of money in my heart will be lessened so that I can follow you more? Are you willing to hear him? And if you listen to him, he might say something. Or will you walk away sad because you, like the rich man, have great wealth? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that your word speaks to us and we would ask that you Speak to us in a meaningful and significant way. We want to surrender everything to you. And uh, we want to give to you everything that we have. Whether we give a small percentage or a big percentage, everything we have is yours. And we want to be generous, not because we have to, but because we get to. Not because you command it, but because we want to love you well. And so help us to have the idol of our hearts exposed. We do love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and sing a closing verse.